You're listening to the Nixon Out Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavrodis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at nixonfoundation.org. Today we're talking the Nixon tapes again with specific focus on President Nixon's taped conversations about the Watergate controversy of June 1972. Our guest again is Luke Nichter, professor of history at Texas A&M University, Central Texas. He's the nation's foremost expert on the Nixon White House tapes and founder of nixontapes.org. Luke, welcome back. Thanks, Jonathan. As a primer, could you tell our audience uh, what exactly does Watergate mean? Just give us the who, what, when, where, and why. Well, Watergate, I, I mean, it means different things to different people, but it, over time, it's really become this umbrella term. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's 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 a, I mean, it's it's a word that kind of symbolizes um, a government scandal. Um, the the suffix gate seems to be added to uh, to just about any kind of presidential scandal ever since Watergate. But more than that, it's also a building uh, in Washington. It's a it's a hotel. It's a residential complex. Uh, and um, it, for our purposes, in 1972, the the office complex portion of Watergate's very large sprawling conference on the um, uh, kind of near George Washington University on the banks of the Potomac. For our purposes, it was um, the office building that was the location of the Democratic National Committee uh, in June of 1972, um, where this break-in took place. Uh, So it describes both the break-in, but also many other sort of events, cascading events during the investigation into Watergate have also become known as Watergate, you know, under this overarching umbrella term. Was Nixon, can you give us the, some historical background on political espionage? Is this something that, that is unique to the Nixon era, or is this something that happened beforehand? Well, this, I mean, this is a, I mean, talking to a historian, you could, you could probably say it goes back to George Washington, and Benjamin Franklin is our, kind of running our first uh, espionage service uh, through the postal system. Um, but, you know, I think in more modern times, I, I, you know, and a lot of these records are still being opened. I mean, we talk about Watergate and, and, and political and uh, domestic espionage. I mean, these are, are, are very sensitive subjects, um, and, and many, many records are, are still closed today. These are subjects that I'm especially hesitant, you know, to say, you know, this is exactly what we know and this is all we know, uh, when the fact is that, that almost every week, and and I've submitted now, I think, over 2,000 uh, Freedom Information Act requests that deal primarily uh, with this time period. Um, that I think, I, in my view, it's, it's fair to say um, that the historical background in Watergate, I think you can trace back easily to 1945, uh, the fear of the Cold War, the fear of enemies in our midst, uh, a Red Scare, communists, the McCarthy era. Uh, the fear of uh, uh, Russian support uh, and involvement in our internal politics, political system, Cuban involvement, uh, Chinese involvement. Uh, I think uh, as a result of this this, this uh, climate of fear in the immediate post-war and the beginning of the Cold War, the powers of the presidency, the powers of our in- intelligence community have been growing ever since. And let me make clear, I'm, I'm not someone who necessarily believes in a in a deep state or a a sort of government run amok or anything like that, I think there are very legitimate reasons for these powers, and I, and I, and I do not question, uh, certainly, legitimate secrecy. Um, but I think the, 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 the climate, uh, the environment that produced Watergate 
had been building for a very long time, and it's it's uh, certainly well documented, even if less attention is paid to it, uh, that uh, President Nixon's predecessors also were involved in domestic espionage. And uh, I mean, think about President Nixon. I mean, he arrived in uh, as a young man, as a young attorney in the late 40s. He ran for the House. He was in the Senate. He was he was eight years as Eisenhower's vice presidency. I mean, his career in Washington sort of parallels the growth of these powers of the what we would call, later call the imperial presidency and of the intelligence community. And so, you know, so these things have been occurring long before, you know, he came in the White House and, and before the Watergate break-in. So the break-in happens on June 17, 1972. Uh, three days later, President Nixon and his chief of staff have their first recorded conversation about the break-in. An earlier portion of this conversation uh, is the so-called 18 and a half uh, minute gap. Um, but this is June 20th, 1972. <laughs> Now, Nixon has heard talking about prior authorizations and double, double standards. What exactly does he mean? Well, you know, this is one of these conversations where, you know, we can consume the words and we can study them and talk about them. But, I mean, unless you know what Nixon knows or how he knows them, we're never going to have a full understanding. And this is, this is, the, this is the problem of, of these tapes that these tapes are wonderful and they illuminate things that don't appear elsewhere. They clarify history, but they also distort our attempts to clarify history because we don't know what they know. We don't know if they have some memo in front of them they're talking about. Um, sometimes you can hear the rustling of paper or something like that. But, you know, so these are, these are audio recordings. You know, we don't have a full view. Um, my interpretation of this conversation is it, c- it could mean a couple different things. Um, it might be talking about Watergate. Um, Haldeman's uh, notes taken during the, co- the conversation in this period suggest that the first conversation that Nixon and Haldeman had about Watergate was on the way back to Washington from Florida, where they were over that weekend. Uh, but I know, I, there's no record of what they talked about. But this is the first taped recording you know, in the White House. Um, what, what's also interesting is that the Supreme Court, um, the, the Monday after Watergate, just issued a very significant ruling in what's been called in shorthand the Keith case, uh, or U.S. versus U.S. District Court is the name of the case. And in, in this, the, the traditional uh, policy for wiretapping was that uh, the attorney general or the attorney general's designate could, could uh, authorize the FBI to place a tap. And the Supreme Court case, the Keith case, changed the rule uh, by saying that a, a judicial judicial order, a signed judge's order, was was also needed, um, and so you know, the content fits whether they're talking about Watergate or whether they're talking about the Supreme Court case. But regardless of what they're talking about, I'm not, not frankly sure 100 percent. What they're talking about is kind of how, how it's been done in the past, how wiretap wiretapping's been done, and how that's about to change. Um, the other the other thing that's interesting about this conversation, I think is 
as you, as you pointed out, and uh, earlier in the same conversation is the the eight the the, the eighteen and a half minute gap. Uh, these these uh, eighteen and a half minutes of tape that have been erased or are missing, uh, and Nixon was was pretty severely criticized for this. And, and for those, uh, in Italy, you know, it was helped to feed this idea of a, of a cover up or destroying evidence. Um, what's fascinating about this segment of um, transcript that you read is everyone pays attention to the the gap, the erasure, uh, and I always think, why? I mean, it's an erasure. You're not going to hear anything. There have been numerous attempts to recover that deleted audio, including up to a few years ago, the National Archives used a kind of CSI technique to, uh, and used the intelligence agencies and other audio, forensic audio experts to try, to try to recover it. And they actually found out it's not an 18-and-a-half-minute gap. It's, it's up to seven or eight or nine different erasures done at different times on different machines because they each leave kind of a different tone or stamp on the recording. And so everybody focuses on listening to the erasure or just before the erasure or just after the erasure. You know, so what were they talking about just before it happened or just out of the uh, deleted period? And no one looks at the rest of the conversation, which is something like a 75-minute or a 90-minute conversation. It's a fairly long conversation that touches on a lot of subjects. Um, and so something like 40 minutes later in the conversation after the erasure, uh, here you have Nixon saying back in connection with wiretapping. Well, which, which to me suggests he's returning to a subject discussed previously. Well, if you look at the available audio, um, and of course we don't have the erased portion, there, there, I can tell you there's nothing else in the recording uh, about wiretapping. So either this is he's referring to a conversation that they had previously, or you know they're referring to content that was deleted during the erasure. And all kinds of people and even conspiracy theorists have conjectured about what might have been erased, what was so important. You know, if the tapes were so damaging uh, in part to Nixon's legacy during the Watergate investigation and those weren't erased, then, then what, what was erased? You know, what was even more damaging potentially? So I think that's interesting to get some clues in terms of what they might have been talking about earlier, which to me the whole tenor of the conversation suggests there had been a long history of government wiretapping. Let's listen to the second tape uh, three days later on June 23rd, 1972. Uh, this was later deemed as the smoking, uh, the so-called smoking gun tape. Uh, let's listen to the audio. This is President Nixon and his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman. Uh, why is this called the smoking gun tape? 
Well, it's, it's called the smoking gun tape because, and this is a term that we've come to use uh, in subsequent political scandals, because uh, of the tapes that were subpoenaed and turned over to investigators later, uh, it was considered to be the one, the one uh, that showed at a very early stage, we're talking six days after the break-in, that the president was aware of Watergate, uh, and they and prosecutors believed uh, evidence that he was orchestrating the cover-up uh, by way of uh, obstruction of justice, and specifically, uh, you know, asking for. Uh, I mean, there's there's a couple things going on. Um, I mean, he's basically what Nixon's what investigators believe was that Nixon was saying the FBI shouldn't be looking into this. And if Nixon has to use the CIA or another branch of government to tell the FBI, another branch of government, um, to stay out of this, you know, they ought to do it. And if not, I'm going to unleash this whole, you know, Bay of Pig, Pigs thing, which is kind of, a, I mean, it's it's a, it's a it's, it's, it's there's quite a lot of background uh, on on this. And I, you know, it, it's one of these. Nixon sometimes speaks in almost metaphors, and it's it's you know, it's hard to tell exactly what he's saying. But I think investigators concluded. This was kind of a very early point when he was he was aware of and taking part in um, a cover up. Is this is this um, followed through? Is this um, idea of getting the FBI or the CIA to tell the FBI to call off an investigation? Is this followed through upon? Well, th- this is where you get into the interesting thing um, because and and uh, obviously I'm not I'm not an attorney. I'm a historian. Um, and so you've got different rules of, of uh, evidence, and you've got different burdens of proof for civil cases and criminal cases. Um, you know, and it starts to get complicated. Um, you know, my own take uh, as a sort of novice, uh, um, sort of legal historian, if you want to use that term for a moment, is that. You know, a, a much lower standard for a civil case, you know, might be, uh, you know, he should have known better or a preponderance of the evidence. Um, and, you know, I, I think there is a case to be made there. I mean, the, fight it out in court. I mean, I, I'm not the judge. In terms of criminal, uh, criminal standard, you know, beyond uh, uh, sort of beyond the shadow of a doubt, the pale of a doubt, you know, I mean, it's really an overwhelming amount of evidence. Um, I, I'm not sure. Um, even if you read, if you read this, uh, I mean, obviously a judge and jury will will decide on their own. Um, but my 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 take on that, or well, forget my take. Nixon's take, you know, Nixon's take as an attorney uh, who argue was a, a big enough attorney to be a partner in a major firm and to argue a case before the Supreme Court, is that to have a criminal to to find sort of criminal motive. You know, you have to prove that someone had a, a corrupt motive. And Nixon always maintained um, to the end of his life that he never had a corrupt motive, you know, depend, no matter what these tapes say. Now, I, I'm not sure how you, uh, how you prove someone has a corrupt motive unless somehow you can get inside their mind. Uh, but that was Nixon's defense. And, and at least to, to date, I mean, no one has proved he has a corrupt motive. Uh, so I, I, you know, I'm not sure how you would do that. Um, but getting back to your, your, the other part of your question, you know, the other challenge I have with this conversation, besides, you know, what does this really show, is, uh, you know, what's Nixon really saying and ordering? Um, 
I recall Ray, Ray Price told me a number of years ago that, you know, those of us around Nixon, um, you know, he vented a lot. Um, and I think Kennedy also vents on his tapes and Johnson vents on his tapes. And so those around the president, Price told me, have to have the ability of knowing how to filter what the president says. So when he says something, um, when do you implement it literally and fully? Or when do you kind of interpret what he wants you to do? And when do you not do anything? Because, you know, he's blowing off some steam and actually he doesn't really want you to do these things. Um, any more than he wants to firebomb Brookings, you know, which is another tape people have interpreted to suggest he literally wanted to firebomb Brookings, where one of his close former staff members, Steve Hess, was a, was a fellow. I mean, did Nixon literally expect to read the next morning in the Washington Post of the casualty figures and the property damage of firebombing Brookings? I think this is absurd to suggest that. And, you know, you hear other tapes where I recall one from later this year, after the 72 election, uh, the night of the election, they're, they're taping late into the night, something like 3.15 in the morning, and Nixon is not normally a night owl. Normally he's more early to bed or early to rise, unless he's not sleeping well, according to the tapes. And in one, that night, uh, Haldeman's running through a number of things with him, and they have the standard you know, uh, telegram um, to the defeated opponent. So there's the draft telegram to Senator McGovern, saying, you know, uh, something along the lines of you ran a very honorable race and we look forward to working with you for the good of the country for the next four years, something along those lines. And, you know, in the heat of the moment, Nixon says, forget it, don't even send it. Um, and then the next day, he, uh, the next day of the day after, also on the tapes, he asked Haldeman whether or not he sent the telegram, and Nixon says, or what did you ever do with the telegram? And Haldeman says, I sent it. And Nixon says, just as well, just as well. So Haldeman had this ability this filter, as Ray Price said, and not everybody did. I'm not sure that John Dean ever had it. I'm not sure Chuck Colson had it. Um, but those who spent a lot of time with Nixon needed to have that. You, you had to know how to interpret his, what he was saying. So here's another layer of complexity. You know, is, is Nixon literally ordering uh, the CIA to stop the break-in? I don't know. Maybe he is. Maybe he's not. Um, is, is you know, is, and is, he, is he literally is he expecting Haldeman? to literally and fully comply with this. I don't know that either. Um, so this is why I have a hard time. You know, as a historian, when I have a tape on any subject, and I say, wow, this tape's really great, you know, the first thing I do is to kind of challenge it. I try to look for other evidence. If somebody's still alive, I might ask them about it. I might dig into the National Archives and the Nixon Library to find corroborating evidence. Does that evidence point me in the same direction? Does it turn me around and send me somewhere else? And so I think that's the hard thing about using a single source, like, like a single snippet from a single conversation from a tape, is um, I, I'm not sure you can take it at face value. I mean, you really have to challenge yourself. So I think this tape shows us there's a continuum here of possibilities where Nixon meant it completely and literally and on the other side, he, he didn't at all. And I think most of the time with history and in my own work, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I think the prosecutors took this fairly literally at face value. And I think that's what allowed them to conclude uh, obstruction of justice, which became one of the, really the central item of uh, the articles of impeachment, which would have proceeded had he not resigned. 
The break-in happens in June 1972, as do these conversations. But <clears throat> the president, um, this this comes on the heels of you know the president going to China, uh, the president going to Russia. Uh, he's trying to wind down the Vietnam War, and then he wins a landslide election in November 1972. So this happens in the in the background of all of the, of all uh, the busy time of of this election year. Um, in a year of major diplomatic achievements, but what's what exactly is going on with with Watergate? Um, uh, is there an investigation ensuing, ensuing between uh, June of 1972 and throughout the throughout the rest of the year? Well, in 1972, I mean, Watergate is basically a, a non-story. Um, the the only newspaper looking into it from the very beginning was the Washington Post. It was, and even they sent two of their junior most people, you know, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, to look into it. It was primarily a inside the Beltway story for sort of political aficionados uh, and for people who um, were critics of Nixon. Um, and on the tapes, at least, it just pops up periodically. Uh, so it pops up here with these couple of these clips you've already played and or read. And then it really doesn't pop up much until um, September, mid-September. Um, the, there's really not an investigation. I mean, there's the, the burglars themselves went to jail, and uh, their trial, I mean, their, their case is proceeding. And it will, it will begin to go to trial late in 72 after the election and the hearing, the hearing and witnesses that go through uh, part of January, third week of January in 73. But it's really not a story. I mean, there's no congressional inquiry there's no special prosecutor, um, and subsequently, I don't. And, and this is, I think, partly what hurts Nixon, is I don't think he really pays a lot of attention to it. It doesn't seem very serious. He intentionally loads up this year with a massive number of commitments and activities: uh, the visit to China, the visit to Moscow, uh, a number of other summits, trying to wind down Vietnam, uh, and, and a number of other initiatives where he, he does this intentionally to have a high degree of activity, he feels that rather than campaigning, that that is the best way to campaign, is to do presidential things, to look presidential. Um, and so he doesn't pay a lot of attention to Watergate. And one could make an argument, and I, I, say, it's, I say so in one of my books, that perhaps, uh, and I can never get in his mind, so I, I don't know whether this is even feasible, but and it's all what-if history anyway, so it's water over the dam. But it seems to me that the best thing he could have done uh, during the sum- sometime in the summer of 72, while the first grand jury-, grand jury is being impaneled and witness statements are being taken, is he should have put everybody in one room, um, uh, Magruder, Dean, Mitchell, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and kind of said, you know, lock the door and don't come out until you, 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 know, you, you guys are on the same page. And I know what's going on. I think because Nixon was so distracted by many other important things, by things that were more important in 72, he learns about it, what really happened, only over time, only over bits and pieces, and only as the story starts to evolve by different people. And so I don't think at an early point in time, he really, I mean, attorneys talk about kind of chain of custody of evidence and of the facts. I think by the time that Nixon had the facts, the chain of custody was so broken and the facts were so tampered with, I don't think he had any chance to recover, you know, no matter what his options were. Uh, so, I, so, you know, I think that fundamentally was what was going on in 72. 
is he had so many things going on and effectively a runaway re-election campaign that he, he only starts to bring his focus to Watergate uh, in 73. It's really, it's a 72 event, but it's really a, a 73 story as far as when it finally catches the nation's attention. Let's listen to the next, uh, the next tape of in, in 1973, March 21st. Uh, this is an important tape because it covers the background of the break-in and the alleged cover-up. Uh, this is President Nixon with his uh, White House counsel, John Dean. That was White House counsel John Dean talking to President Nixon. You had mentioned uh, previously that Nixon sort of got the facts about Watergate in bits and pieces. Um, was this Nixon's conversation with Dean, was this a Nixon's attempt to to get all the facts about uh, the case? Well, this is the most comprehensive conversation on the tapes about Watergate to date. And this is more than nine months after the break-in. This is March 21st. 1973. Of course, the break-in was June 17, 1972. Um, so nine months later, at least on the tapes, and of course there were parts of Nixon's days and weeks and months and years that were not taped, so it's possible conversations took place somewhere else. Although if they did, uh, Nixon probably would have referred to them. Uh, he does refer to conversations on the tapes that he had elsewhere. But this is the first real kind of comprehensive conversation about Watergate more than nine months later, which, which is, to me, just absolutely shocking. How did this conversation come about? Well, as far as I know, um, mid-March 73 is really when things start to shift. So one of the burglars, James McCord, who had been a CIA director of security, uh, he, was, he retired, ran his own security company, and did some security work for Nixon's committee to re-election the president. He is, he is patiently kind of sitting in jail. And up to that point, the Watergate investigation is, is you, know, like almost, you know, almost nine months later, it really hasn't gone beyond uh, the, the circle of burglars. I think the prosecutors had hoped they would have been able to link to other people um, linked to higher-ups, linked to the White House, and it just it didn't go anywhere. And McCord wrote the judge, Judge Sirica, John Sirica, a letter. And in the letter, Sirica refers to the fact that, you know, if you look here or you look there, that you will find that higher-ups are involved. And so it really injected a new energy into the investigation, it, it caused Sirica, see, Sirica's case, U.S. v. Liddy, was, was pretty much winding down. 
the convictions had been handed out. But so, uh, what, what McCord's letter did was ultimately help to fuel what became the Urban Committee um, to, to really broaden the Watergate investigation into political officials and not just campaign officials and, and specifically those who were involved in the arrest. So, so once that happens, I think Nixon and those around him know that he needs to have the facts, and Nixon start to ask, starts to ask for a kind of full report on Watergate. And the primary person in charge of handling Watergate was John Dean. Um, and this isn't a statement meant to be critical of Dean. Um, in, in Dean himself, in his memoir, uh, refers to his own role as the as the Watergate as the desk officer of Watergate. This was his day-to-day duty. This fell in his portfolio of duties because it was he his title was counsel to the president, and this was a legal challenge to the president. So this was just kind of fell in his backyard. So his job was to handle, you know, um, among his other duties, you know, day-to-day liaison and problems and troubleshooting related to Watergate. Uh, so Dean was supposed to go to Camp David uh, and write a full written report of, you know, what can the president say? What does the president need to know about Watergate? If he's asked, what can he say about Watergate? What did he, what to, to coin a phrase from this period, what did he know and when did he know it? Uh, Dean ultimately decides that he's not able to produce this report or doesn't want to produce this report. And so in, in this conversation is really his full kind of laying out uh, to the president that it, not based on new facts, I mean, he's talking about things that happened the year before, uh, but that he's, he's revealing to Nixon for the first time that this thing's a lot worse than you realize. What does he mean when he says there's a cancer on the presidency and that it's growing geometrically? Well, that's the phrase that's memorable. You know, this is the cancer on the presidency conversation of March 21st. Um, I think what he means is that by saying it's a cancer, uh, that it's not going to go away on its own, that something has to be done, even drastic, to remove it. Uh, and by saying it's growing geometrically, it's it's growing in multiple directions all at the same time. And I think he, Dean is pressing Nixon to do something fairly quickly, uh, to do something involving himself, I mean, direct to be, become directly involved in this, um, which, which to me is, is somewhat odd. Um, I mean, I, I have thankfully in my life not had the occasion to have a lot of attorneys. Now, maybe the, the case here is that because Nixon is an attorney, Dean feels comfortable discussing all this with him. Um, but in my, I mean, I would expect my own attorney to sort of deal with this um, and not kind of get me involved, because by getting Nixon involved, it potentially jeopardizes your client. I mean, Nixon at this point is the client. So again, I'm not an attorney, um, and as more records become available about this subject, we're, we're still learning more. Um, but this is, you know, Dean now getting Nixon very directly involved in this about a lot of things that it's clear to me. You know, you can listen to a 30-second soundbite. There are many, many hours of conversations on uh, on this subject. It's clear to me that even on March 21st, there's a lot that Nixon doesn't know and is learning for the first time. And just to me, that is absolutely shocking. Let's listen to another uh, expert from this excerpt from the same uh, from the same conversation. Magruder called 
called me in January and said, I'd like to have you come over and see Liddy's plan or January of 92. I'd like you to come over to Mitchell's office and sit in on me where Liddy's going to lay his plan out. I said, well, I don't really know if I'm the man, but if you want me there, I'll be happy to. <clears throat> so I came over, and Liddy laid out a million-dollar plan that was the most incredible thing I have ever laid my eyes on, all in codes and involved black bag operations, kidnapping, providing prostitutes uh, that weaken the opposition, bugging, uh, mugging teams. It was just an incredible thing. <laughs> and no, 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 no. And, and Mitchell, Mitchell just virtually sat there puffing and laughing. I could tell because after he, after Liddy left the office, I said that's the most incredible thing I've ever seen. He said I agree. And so he was told to go back to the drawing boards and come up with something realistic. So there was a second meeting. Uh, they asked me to come over that. I came into the tail end of the meeting. I wasn't there for the first part of that. I don't know how long the meeting lasted. Uh, at this point, they were discussing again, bugging, kidnapping, and the like. And at this point, I said, right in front of everybody, very clearly, I said, these are not the sort of things, one, that are ever to be discussed in the office of the Attorney General of the United States, where he still was. And I'm personally incensed. I'm trying to get Mitchell off the hook because uh, he's, a, he's a nice person doesn't like to say no under when people he's going to have to work with. So I let, I let it be known. I said, you all pack that stuff up and get it the hell out of here because just, you just can't talk this way in this office and you should, you should re-examine your whole thinking. That was, um, again, uh, the counsel of the president, uh, John, White House counsel, John Dean, talking uh, to President Nixon. Um, he's talking about uh, G. Gordon Liddy. Uh, who is G. Gordon Liddy, and what are the origins of this plan that he presents to uh, Attorney General John Mitchell? So, so Gordon Liddy uh, had been a former, I mean, just about everybody involved, and this is one of the curious aspects of, of Watergate, although we've never been able to establish firm links, that almost everybody, I think everybody involved in the Watergate break-in had, had current or past affiliations with the FBI or CIA. These were people who had uh, some degree of experience in you know, lock-picking and breaking and entering and I, I guess the kinds of things you would need to conduct a break-in. Liddy was one of these. He, he had been a former FBI official. Um, more recently, prior to Watergate, he had been in the Department of Treasury uh, and had been um, moved out of there and, and moved into Nixon's committee to re-elect the president, where he worked on various uh, security issues. Uh, and so he was a committee to re-elect the president official um, who, who, you know, was presenting this, who had been tasked was presenting some kind of a, you know, a security plan, a comprehensive security plan during the campaign. Um, and so, you know, the, Dean is recalling these two meetings where Liddy was making his presentation. Uh, and I think, that, you know, Dean is already, even as of this early date, this is still March 21st, you know, he says he's trying to get Mitchell off the hook. I think he's trying to get himself off the hook. And he's already kind of delineating and, and building walls around kind of what he knows and what he doesn't know and characterizing those in a certain way to show that he wasn't as involved as perhaps, you know, he might have been. Uh, so, you know, again, you have Nixon is hearing, as far as we know, Nixon is hearing as close as he is to Mitchell, as close as he is to Magruder and other officials who were part of these same meetings. As far as I know, this is the first time 
that uh, this is now he's hearing about that Nixon's hearing about these these events that occurred you know more this in this case more than a year before because Mitchell had already left uh, to go left the attorney general's position by the time of the break-in uh, and so to, to me this is one more example where you know he's learning about these things firsthand filtered by Dean uh, where it would have been helpful to have known these long before Mitchell um, is clearly, according to Dean, clearly amused uh, by what Liddy is saying and and uh, sort of laughs and, uh, according to some accounts, rolls his eyes um, or at least uh, winks at Dean to tell him that this is, you know, clearly absurd. Um, but he has Liddy back um, at at the at his office. Why why was why was John Mitchell entertaining these conversations? From Liddy when it was when he felt that they were he was so patently absurd and in fact he even tells him to burn um, burn his uh, his charts when he when he tells Liddy to burn his charts that were presented um, after the first meeting. Well, that's a good question, and and apparently um, from what I understand or have heard, you know the CIA helped Liddy develop those charts. Um, so I mean, there's all kinds of you know layers of intrigue here. Uh, but, you know, one of the fundamental questions of Watergate still to this day is we still don't know, you know, who ordered the break-in. We don't know uh, what they were looking for um, and, you know, why then, why there. I mean, sort of basic kind of who, what, when, where questions about Watergate. Um, as far as we know, President Nixon had no pre-break-in knowledge and didn't authorize it. So because of that and because of these conversations here we're talking about, the blame tends to fall on John Mitchell because of these meetings and because he was the run that ran the campaign. And that's where you can kind of draw the straight line between these meetings and between running the campaign. Um, I, I, but to answer your question, I don't know why they're discussing this. And also, you know, there's different ways to interpret. Again, this is why I say there's different ways to interpret what we're hearing. I mean, anybody who hears conversation, uh, you know, uh, I mean, about providing prostitutes to weaken the opposition and black bags and mugging teams, uh, you, you can't help but chuckle. And you chuckle because you can't, you assume it's not serious. And so I think there was a degree of that with Mitchell. And, you know, I've had people tell me, well, when he said this is outrageous and we can't, we can't talk about this, are the, is, is that reaction occurring because of this content, which is, which is outrageous, or is it because a, million, a figure of a million dollars was outrageous? And I've heard from some of these people that it's both. Um, that, you know, this was, this was Liddy's responsibility, but the, the, the first instinct of Dean and of Mitchell, at least as far as we know, I mean, Mitchell hasn't left a diary or personal pay. He's the most important figure in Watergate, as far as I know, who really hasn't left any records about his own personal thoughts and reflections about what really happened. And I don't know if they've been burned or whether they've been there. They just haven't surfaced yet. But it's, it's the, the first instinct here with Liddy is not unlike what Dean says. You know, never discuss this content again in the Attorney General. The 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 first reaction is come back here and present it again and make a proposal that costs less. And so, as I understand it, the original one million dollar budget is cut in half, and then it's cut in half again. To somewhere around two hundred fifty thousand dollars is what Liddy ends up having uh, access to, and I don't know whether he spent it all or or, or what. Um, so I mean, you're hearing Dean's side of the story, 
But but again, I think if Nixon heard Mitchell's side of the story and Magruder's and Haldeman's and Ehrlichman's, I, I don't quite think it would be the same. Did Dean have prior knowledge of the break-in, in your opinion, that it was going to happen? That is a good question. Um, I cannot refer to anything specifically that says so. And I'm a historian, and I deal with evidence. Uh, and I, I don't deal with rumor and gossip and innuendo. There are, are many writers, uh, including some that probably are you know, described as conspiracy theorists, who claim that you know, all roads point back to Dean here. I mean, this was his responsibility. Uh, he knew everyone involved. Um, and that Dean was fundamentally more involved in the break-in than he has led people to believe. And that's speculation. I mean, I, I think it's, you can make a case for that. Um, but what's more clear later is that when Dean became the starring witness against Nixon, um, in part you know, through his characterization of, of these taped recordings, uh, the prosecutors knew that, that Dean had major credibility problems of his own. And some of these records have just come to surface in, in very recently, very recent years. Uh, prosecutors own records who are very, very doubtful about Dean's story, his credibility, and how it's changed over the, over the, uh, over the months and ultimately over the years. But Dean ultimately is in the best position to be the star witness, and everything has to be done in order to give Dean maximum credibility. Otherwise, they're going to lose their – you know, if the target is Nixon – and you won't settle for for taking down anyone smaller than that. You know, Dean is the going through Dean and using him as your star witness is the route you need to get to Nixon. Uh, so the more that I study about Watergate, um, I'm I'm not sure I'm not any less confused about it all in terms of what was it really about. I mean, the central questions: Why did it happen? Why did it happen? When did it did? What were they looking for? And who authorized it? Uh, the deeper I've dug into now probably millions of pages and tapes, um, it, it, some elements of this have, have continued to be impenetrable and mysterious. Uh, my, my hunch here is that the committee of re-elect wanted a security plan from Liddy. Uh, he presented certainly a lot more than, than they, they wanted to. I do not know whether these are the kinds of things that, that Mitchell wanted, um, but by the time of this tape, March 31st, as Dean and others started to think about their own potential personal culpability, and in some cases were soon here to begin lawyering up and preparing for their own eventual self-defense, um, it's about this point going forward. I'm not sure you can believe a lot of these presentations to Nixon because these are no longer occurring at a pure innocent time. They're occurring when the expectation is there will be great scrutiny on these events in the very near future, and so I think here forward is when these tapes start to become a little less reliable. Is what is discussed in the meetings with Mitchell, did they all manifest itself in the June 72 break-in? Well, I, I mean, uh, so Liddy is presenting a kind of security plan for the, the campaign. Um, and, I mean, I, I unless I've missed it, um, I, I don't know that, there's any evidence of mugging teams, and I don't know there's any evidence of using prostitutes or any, any of these more outrageous elements. I mean, you could say that the Watergate break-in, you know, could draw a line between these, this conversation, which does talk about black bag jobs, which is kind of a metaphor for break-ins, 
and break-ins that occurred, including you know the Watergate break-in. But is that a direct line? Is it a dotted line? Uh, should that line take a detour somewhere else? Are they really talking about somewhere else? I, I, something else? I mean, Dean draws. Dean obviously draws a line between the two. This was the planning meeting that he's talking to Nixon about, and this was the result: the Watergate break-in. I think it's much more complex than that, and I think a lot of those records aren't opened. Uh, so, yes, I think the the Watergate break-in did originate with something. Uh, I think reasonable people can debate whether or not you know this meeting was the actual point of origin for the June 17th break-in. Uh, I just don't know yet. Let's listen to the next excerpt uh, of the same conversation. Come up. Uh, Liddy said, said that, you know, they all got counsel instantly and said that, you know, we'll, we'll ride this thing out. All right, then they started making demands. Hey, we've got to have attorney's fees. Uh, we don't have any money ourselves, and this, you're asking us to take this through the election. All right, so arrangements were made through Mitchell, uh, initiating it in discussions, but I was present that these guys had to be taken care of. Their attorney fees had to be done. Kambach was brought in. Uh, Kambach raised some cash. Uh, they were, uh, you know... They had a Cuban committee, and they had some of it was given to Hunt's lawyer, who in turn passed it out. This, you know, when Hunt's wife was flying to Chicago with 10000 she was actually, I understand, after the fact now, was going to pass that money to a, one of the Cubans to meet him in Chicago and pass it to somebody there. Luke, what are Dean and Nixon talking about in terms of paying attorney's fees to Hunt um, and the other uh, burglars, these, these so-called Cubans? Well, this is another interesting question. So, so the, the burglars, uh, so you've got you know, the, those who were arrested that night of the early morning of June 17th at the DNC offices. So you've got you know, the Cubans, the break-in team, and then later you know, you've, got, you've, well, you've got McCord, then you've also got uh, uh, Hunt and Liddy. 
uh, Hunt and Liddy were not at the, they were not arrested on site, but they, those who were arrested on site at the DNC at the Watergate um, were ultimately traced to Hunt and Liddy, who were considered to be sort of organizers or managers, you know, of those who conducted the break-in. So, I mean, imagine, I mean, so this is 73 now, this conversation, March 21. Um, they've been out of work for a long time. I mean, so you, they, were in, they were arrested, they were in jail, they awaited trial, they presumably sat for the grand jury. The trial played out in early 73, they were convicted. Um, that's expensive. Um, you're, it's expensive because of lost wages, it's expensive because of uh, legal fees that are accumulating. And so, and secondly, I'll make another point that traditionally, in terms of covert operations, intelligence, legitimate intelligence, covert operations, and again, we can have a debate or discussion over whether this break in was a legitimate covert intelligence operation or not. The tradition is if you're, you know, if you're undercover and caught. Uh, in the intelligence community, and all these Cubans, I mean, everyone involved directly in the break-in, um, everyone had intelligence experience, so this would have been well-known. If you are caught in a mission, you, it is to be expected that you will be disavowed by your agency. You know, nope, not our employee, we don't know anything about him. But typically, your humanitarian expenses will be paid for. So your spouse might receive uh, ongoing support payments your legal bills might be paid. Um, the, the equivalent of your paycheck or more, you know, might still flow to your family. But publicly, you no, know, we had nothing to do with this. You, you were on your own. In order to protect the agency, to protect the United States, in the case of a, this is a foreign operation, a very sensitive one. And so they're, what they're talking about is the fact that these, 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 these guys who were part of the break-in um, have, have expenses, legitimate expenses. And so in, in the course of these conversations, uh, Nixon is, is, is I, think he could, I think it's fair to say this, again, I can't get in his mind, that due to these traditions for those who work in these fields, that it is fair to assume that the Nixon committee, like the president, the 73, so there's no, the, the committee's over, and thus Nixon, the White House and thus Nixon himself, has some kind of ongoing responsibility or liability uh, in terms of the humanitarian expenses of these these people who came from fields where that's how you're supposed to be treated. Um, so that's that's the way that I personally, you know, read this content. Just for for background, who who is Howard Hunt? Well, so Howard Hunt had also been a, a CIA official going back to. Uh, I think the late 40s or early 50s, and uh, had recently retired prior to Watergate and uh, had been involved in Bay of Pigs and other sensitive uh, intelligence operations in the previous decade. Um, and so he was, uh, along with Liddy, kind of a manager of this break-in, but ultimately got, got ensnared in it himself. Why, do, why does John Dean feel that... Um that the White House is going to be, uh, the senior officials within the White House are being blackmailed? Well, that's a whole other matter. Uh, I mean, humanitarian expenses and blackmail, I think, are, are, um, are different things. Not necessarily completely different things, but I think the concern is this. 
uh, it, imagine being in the White House. You you don't know you don't know the limits of your liability. I mean, how long are these guys going to be in jail? They might need a certain amount of money right now. Uh, well, does that cover it, or does your liability continue indefinitely? You know, how is this to be paid? Um, how often is it to be paid? And so the issue is, you know, if somebody says, I need this amount of money um, to, to, for my, my legitimate humanitarian expenses, and, and, and you say, fine, we'll pay that. And then they come back to you a week later and say, now I need a lot more. Well, I mean, you're not really in a position to scrutinize what they need and don't need. And so the concern is that the, the, those you're paying, once you start paying them, even for legitimate humanitarian expenses, should they wish to take advantage of you, could ask for an almost unlimited amount. And, you know, unless you, you, you give in to their demands, uh, what other option do you have? What could, I mean, what, could, what sort of information that they, would, that they might have that they could blackmail senior officials with? Well, to this date, um, I think most of the Cubans are still alive. And I, I, I think, for the most part, they don't talk. Um, they really haven't done interviews. They haven't written very much. I mean, these are people who are from the intelligence world. And so they I think it's fair to say they treated this break-in as though it were a totally legitimate uh, break-in, authorized for national security or for whatever other reason, as uh, other parts of their career as either employees or contractors for the CIA. Um so I think the fear is is for anybody that someone like that, you know, goes on the witness stand and, and tells all that they know. Um, and, you know, and here it's difficult. I, I, you know, it's difficult being Nixon in these conversations because obviously by March 21st to 73, Watergate is enough of a concern that, you know, pretending not – I mean – Telling your, your counsel, I just don't really want to know, is not really an option anymore because the current legal strategy is not really working. At the same time, the more you know, the more you're going to get drawn in and ultimately pretend, you know, potentially imperiled by the details. And so he's kind of in a tough situation. And that's a little like calling one, one of these Cubans or those to the break-in. I mean, they're talking nine months later, and they, other than to may perhaps the grand jury, and those records are still not available today, they haven't spoken. They haven't done a press interview. I mean, McCord wrote his letter, and I think the thought of the prosecutors was that would then kind of, you know, break the dam, and others might talk. Well, they really didn't. Um, and so, you know, in a, these, I mean, whether you consider Watergate to be sort of, they thought it to be a sort of a legitimate intelligence operation or just a sort of political caper, uh, the fact is that th those involved in it directly had done many other things for the United States and the intelligence community. So the last thing you want is to put someone like that up on the stand and say, well, you're free to talk about whatever you want um, and might get into a host of uh, things that have nothing to do with Watergate that could also be very damaging. So I think the goal was to, for them not to talk at all. Um, but the, the problem here is, is what is the actual liability? And as this thing gets more and more expensive, you know, it's, it's impossible. I mean, this is just simply a road that you cannot go down because it's dangerous. Why is Dean talking about obstruction of justice? Well, this is interesting. Um, and I know around this time, Dean is himself is starting to lawyer up, you know, and think about his own defense. And it's, I, I, 
uh, coincidental that his, the the attorney, the primary attorney, hires Charles Schaffer, is a is a major you know Democratic uh, operative you know in um, in Washington. Um, so I wonder, even as I hear these conversations myself, you know how much of what Dean is already saying is cast in that light where he's been advised what to say he's done and not to do and frame his involvement in a certain way. Um, so, you know, there's still a lot that we don't know because, I, you know, I, I sometimes say after Watergate happened, so the late 70s to say the, the 80s, almost everybody involved, you know, wrote a memoir. Uh, some wrote more than one. Um, and I'm talking both uh, the critics of Nixon and uh, the defenders of Nixon. And for those involved in Watergate, I'm not sure that any of these memoirs you know, are totally reliable because people were desperate, nat- naturally so. They, they were uh, greatly in debt from legal fees and years of work, and you know, it was difficult to find another job right away if you were a high-profile figure associated with Watergate. You know, I sometimes say that if there's any truth in Watergate, um, and at least so far I haven't really found it, it's going to be in the grand jury records. Um, you know, if there's one place where, where anything came out about the truth, it's, it's there because in the grand jury process, the grand, the grand jury process is not like a civil or criminal case where if you're called to testify, you can plead the fifth. And by pleading the fifth, you you uh, you are retaining your Fifth Amendment rights not to self-incriminate you know yourself through your own testimony. Well, in a grand jury process, there is no Fifth Amendment. It's not valid. You can't take the Fifth. If you refuse to cooperate with the grand jury, then you're held in contempt of court and you go to jail and who knows what other penalties. So, in exchange for your testimony to the grand jury, which you you have no choice but to give. Uh, the agreement is that it will always remain private, sealed, um, not be opened. Your identity will be protected. Um, and so I think in light of those circumstances, if there's truth in Watergate, it will be in the grand jury records, which exist and for the most part have never been opened today. And I've been an advocate for opening these, which would be exceptional, I admit. Um, but, you know, most of these people now are deceased, and it's been almost 50 years later as important as Watergate is, whether you know reasonable people can debate and, and have different interpretations of tapes and of facts, one fact is clear, that it led to the resignation for the first time of a sitting president. So this is a significant body of events that we're talking about here. Um, is, is that not a significant, uh, you know, enough justification um, to suggest uh, historic interest and public interest in releasing these records. So, you know, all these, these, so these conversations with Dean, I have a problem with because I feel like there's great information asymmetry between the listener and between the participants in the conversation. Dean has a motive. He ha- also has a right to defend himself. But his, his position vis-a-vis Nixon is evolving this week. He's no longer counsel to the president. He's also counsel to himself and advising himself and positioning himself to ultimately provide a defense of his, of his previous actions. So 
all of this is in my mind while listening to these conversations, which I think is the way that you have to approach them, because I think there, there are many layers and complexities to these conversations. Within the next 60 days, you have a whole um, cascade of events. Uh, John, Dean, <clears throat> John Dean is fired. Um, Haldeman and Ehrlichman resign. The special prosecutor um, is appointed. And the Senate Watergate Committee, the Irvin Committee, begins its inquiries, its investigation. Uh, why is Dean fired? And could you tell us a little bit about, could you summarize the, this turn of events that, uh, that I just talked about? Sure. Well, the, the tape suggests that sometime around the middle of April, the third week of April, I think Nixon has to do something. He has to, to uh, make a public um, decision. He has to take greater control of Watergate. And that he thinks the American people want to see that he's done something drastic to get control of the situation. And ultimately... Uh, and, and this is, you know, a month or so before the Irvin Committee starts to call witnesses and there's speculation about who they might call. Um, and spec- I mean, you talk to the top president's people, John Dean, uh, chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, his top uh, previous counsel and top domestic advisor, John Ehrlichman. And the difficulty there right away is that they're all current staff members to the president. So then that also introduces a constitutional challenge because you have the legislative branch subpoenaing members of the executive branch and these branches of government are supposed to be co-equal. And so that sets down a a, a possible challenge of executive privilege. And so I think what Nixon decides ultimately is we're going to have to accept, accept, accept some losses on our side, but we need to sort of wall this off and protect it from going anywhere further. And if it's inevitable, and I think Nixon comes to believe that it is, that these three will be called as witnesses, he would rather have them be called as former staff of the White House than current staff of the White House. Because once the precedent is established, the president is willing to accept that a current White House staff member can be called, then other White House staff members can be called. And so I think that that became the issue. Um, And so what they decide ultimately, is that uh, uh, whether you want to call these forced resignations, um, you know, whatever the terminology might be, uh, it, was a, it was a coordinated effort. Um, Ehrlich, Ehrlichman was less willing to go. I mean, he kind of wanted to fight this out because his position was a little different. But uh, ultimately, Nixon, Dean, uh, Haldeman, and Ehrlichman decided that the three, three of the three staffers would go um, – uh, and, and Nixon would give a speech uh, at the end of April, and effective May 1st, you know, they would they would be gone. Um, so I think that that was the plan. So they would they would then be called as witnesses as former White House staff, and I think Nixon's hope then and there was to give a speech, um, to say you know as as he did, I sort of cut off my right arm, my left arm, you know, Haldeman and Ehrlichman, um, and he hoped you know to draw a new line in the sand you know, beyond which the investigation would not go. In um, recently, within the past week, uh, John Dean testified before Congress about the parallels between um, the Watergate investigation and the investigation of Robert Mueller. 
um, on the Trump administration. Um, people, many in the media were recalling uh, John Dean uh, being the star witness of the Watergate, um, of the Water- Watergate uh, inquiries 40 years ago. Why was, why was he a star witness and what did, you know, what did he say? So, so Dean was called as a star witness because the, here, I mean, here we have these, these conversations where, where oftentimes it's Dean and Nixon, you know, who are the only participants. And at that time, so, so Dean was called uh, in, in June as a witness, one of the very first you know, big witnesses of the Urban Committee. He gives this, this huge opening statement, and I believe he's there for something like four and a half or five days of testimony and question and answers. And ultimately, Dean's testimony kind of breaks the whole case open. He, um, he, he. I mean, when you when you read the the, the testimony, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think it's it's incredibly personally damning to Nixon. But it, what it does is it leads investigators who are politicians, you know, who are politicians of the of the opposition. I mean, the Urban Committee, I think, doesn't hide the fact that it's a it's a political investigation. It, it allows the investigators to look a lot of new places for investigate for for information. It allows the investigators to consider a whole new range of witnesses. I mean, Dean kind of broke open the whole investigation. You know, it was televised on all three networks, um, and the, the the power of that, the power of the image, was important because, as I said earlier, in '72, Watergate was really an inside the Beltway story. Um, Nixon was reelected in a landslide, as you said, in November of 72. These televised hearings, you know, which were done on all three networks, allowed Watergate to go into the heartland. It put Watergate in people's living rooms in prime time. It put it on the radio. It put it on TV. Um, it really kind of forced people to come to their own conclusion about Watergate. And so a lot of people, even supporters of President Nixon just months before in his re-election, you know, now are faced with this barrage of content with Watergate. So I think what, what Dean really did is he kind of blew it open, I think showed people that this was a much bigger thing. I mean, the length of his statement, the, the days of his testimony, uh, I think changed the whole parameters uh, of the investigation. If not for the public knowledge of the tapes that we played on this podcast, um, do you think that Nixon still resigns? I mean, that is a great question. I mean, I love what if history, you know, even if we can't change it. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, as I really not just try to stay myself on kind of the cutting edge of what's released about Watergate in terms of new records, but try to actually drive the outer limit of what's released through submitting all these FOIA requests and things to various agencies, because a lot of records still remain closed. I, I maybe have a minority position in terms of, I'm not sure that Nixon needed to resign in the first place, tapes or no tapes, because my own view is that it's entirely possible that had this gone to trial in the Senate, an enormous amount of classified information would have been needed to prosecute Nixon uh, or to defend Nixon. And I'm just not sure that was a price that our government would have wanted to pay at the time. Certainly if we knew then what we know now about some of the activities the prosecutors were involved in, meeting with judges and a a terrible situation. Point two that no one ever talks about, 
uh, within two weeks, uh, you know, when so the Senate Re- Re- Senate Resolution 60 is the resolution that authorized the what became the Urban Committee um, was passed within days of former President Lyndon Johnson's death. No one seems to focus on the fact that when Nixon faced Watergate, he faced it alone. He was the only living current or former president. Um, Johnson had died in late February, late January um, of 73. Truman had died a month before, late December of 72. And so I think it's significant that had Truman or Johnson lived longer, uh, and, and President Nixon faced this challenge, which was not just a challenge to himself, uh, but a challenge to these growing powers that we've been talking about that have been growing in the presidency since, presidency since the dawn of the Cold War, I think it could have been a, a very different situation you know, with regard to, to Watergate because Nixon was, when he was going through this, was the only you know, human being alive who had the understanding that he did about the constitutional challenges, the separation of powers, executive privilege, and so forth, and that there was literally no one, you know, of, of similar credibility, you know, to take his side on some of these issues. So, you know, to, to get back to your question, uh, if not for the, the tapes, would Nixon have resigned? Well, a lot of people advised him to burn the tapes. Uh, these were the, the starring evidence that was used against him, and so it's entirely possible that he, had he taken this advice and and burn them or dump them in the Pacific Ocean, um, it's, he, he might have been president for all eight years. I mean, it, the optics of that would look terrible, like he were covering up for something. Um, instead, I, I, I think, as a, as a lover of history, he's left these to us, uh, to future generations, um, as damaging as they are, you know, when it comes to Watergate. Um, because I, I believe that Nixon believe, thinks ultimately um, you know, a fuller legacy, you know, to, he, he thinks he should be judged by the, the whole record and that future generations will look beyond just this, this issue of Watergate, which has been studied so intensely, and see the whole, you know, the, the whole being, the whole presidency and everything else that he, had, he, he achieved. So these are, these are fascinating what-if questions. Uh, what, you know, what if he'd gone to trial? What if, what if not for the tapes? Um, and I think we will continue to learn more about these as we still have 500 hours of tapes to be released and many, many more records. So as much as we already know and think we know about Watergate, I contend that we still have a long ways to go. Our guest today is Luke Nichter, professor of history at Texas A&M University, Central Texas. Our topic is the Nixon White House taping system as it pertains to the Watergate controversy of June 1972. Luke, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks, Jonathan. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on your favorite podcast app. This is Jonathan Mavroidis and your Belinda.